welcome to Smarten Up, the show where we demystify the complex world of tax and provide practical business insights. I'm your host, Sally Preston. As a business owner, I know how frustrating it can be when it seems hard to access understandable information, particularly when the topic is as complex as the tax law. So in this podcast, we will explore topics to help you make smarter decisions when it comes to your business taxes, which will ultimately benefit your bottom line. Whether you are starting up in business or have been in business for years, this podcast aims to become an essential part of your financial toolkit. Welcome to Smarten Up, the tax and business podcast. My name is Sally Preston and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are talking about contractors and whether they might really be your employees for tax purposes. So why is this important? Well, as a business owner, you need to be aware of your obligations when it comes to paying staff or contractors and the flow on effect of things like superannuation, pay-as-you-go withholding obligations, payroll tax and workers' compensation insurance. Now, to explain this further, under the tax law, If you're an employer, you must withhold amounts from salaries, wages, commissions, bonuses or allowances that you make to a person as a consequence of their employment in their capacity as an employee. So basically, you need to withhold if that person's considered an employee of your business. For superannuation purposes, if the worker is an employee, you would have an obligation to pay superannuation on their ordinary time earnings. So it's interesting to note that the term employee is actually not defined in the tax law and therefore we take it to have its ordinary meaning. But what is that? So we actually look to the interpretation by the courts to determine who an employee is. Now, this is an area of law that has recently evolved due to those cases on the matter. And in December 2023, the ATO updated their view in the form of a public ruling on what is considered an employee for the purposes of pay-as-you-go withholding obligations. Now, only pay-as-you-go withholding obligations. We might use the wording of that ruling to help us interpret who might be employee for superannuation purposes, but to the extent that we do, the ATO is not bound to their ruling. So for the purposes of superannuation, it is important to know that whilst the definition refers to ordinary meaning of an employee, it also expands the term to say that if a person works under a contract that is wholly or principally for the labour of that person, they are considered an employee for super purposes. So it does offer an exclusion. So for example, where a person is paid to do work wholly or principally of a domestic or private nature for less than 30 hours a week, then they'd be excluded from being considered an employee for super purposes and it's got some other things in that definition. But if you are notionally hiring contractors but their contract is wholly or principally for their labour, then they might actually be an employee for super purposes. So if we look at the ATO view and I'm going to quote from their ruling, whether a person is an employee of an entity under the terms ordinary meaning is a question of fact to be determined by reference to an objective assessment of the totality of the relationship between the parties, having regard only to the legal rights and obligations which constitute that relationship. So I'm going to interpret that and say, you need to look at what the contract between the parties says for pay-as-you-go withholding purposes. 
The ruling goes on to say that at its core, the distinction between an employee and independent contractor is that an employee serves the business of an employer, performing their work as part of that business, whereas an independent contractor provides services to your business, but they perform the work to further their own business, not to further yours. I hope that sort of makes a bit of sense, but we'll talk about that again. Now, there are indicators that are still considered relevant to considering whether your worker is a worker as a contractor or as an employee. Now, let's, for example, this is more important when there is no contract and you need to determine which one. Are they really a contractor? Should they be better off treated as an employee to make sure that you meet your obligations? So some of the indicators, let's go through them. Number one is control. So if a person is an employee, then your business has a legal right to control how, when, and where they do their work. If instead that they're a contractor, then the worker can choose how, when, and where the work is done, subject to reasonable direction by you. So number two is integration, and we mentioned this one earlier. So the worker serves in your business if they're an employee, and they're contractually required to perform work as a representative of your business. If they're a contractor, though, the worker provides services to your business and performs work to further their own business. So they may choose to present themselves as part of your business, though. Mode of remuneration. The worker that's an employee is more likely paid for the time they work, for a price per item or activity, or as a commission. A contractor is usually paid to achieve a specific result and paid when they've completed that result, or maybe an interim fee, and often it's a fixed fee. So another factor, number four, is the ability to subcontract or delegate. So the worker must perform the work themselves and cannot pay someone else to do the work for them if they're an employee. I don't know that you'd be very happy if your employees put somebody else in the seat for the day and said they're doing my job. Whereas a contractor is free to delegate it to other people and do the work on their behalf. So the next one is provisions of tools and equipment. Your business provides all or most of the tools or equipment if the person's an employee. And if the employee provides it, maybe they get an allowance or they get reimbursed for the cost of the tools and equipment they need. So as a contractor, though, the worker would be generally providing most of the tools, equipment and other assets required to complete the work. You probably don't give them an allowance for it or reimburse them for the expenses that they incur. The work involves the use of a substantial item that the worker is wholly responsible for. So people would bring the equipment to the job site or to the site if they're doing work for you, providing services to your business. But as a worker, you'd probably be providing it to them to do the job. The next one is risk. So an employee bears little or no risk. It's your business that bears a commercial risk of what they do. So any costs arising out of injury of that employee, the business bears. Whereas as a contractor, you'd expect that party to have insurance and to cover any of the defects under their own business right, not under yours. Another one is generation of goodwill. So your business benefits from the goodwill arising from the work of your employee. Whereas if it's a contractor, it's their business that you'd expect to benefit from the goodwill generated. So the good work that they do, you'd expect to be of an asset to their own business rather than yours. Now, I'm going to go through and let's have a think about those for a scenario. Now, some of you are aware I'm actually uh, have a side hustle as a gym instructor. So I have a second job where I contract or I'm an employee of gyms and different gyms treat them differently. So I think it's a good example because it's curious that different gyms treat a gym instructor differently. So let's run through some of the scenario of a gym instructor. So if I'm considered a contractor or if I'm working for some gyms, they expect me to have an ABN and have my own insurance and I get paid in the completion of the class and sometimes that might be fortnightly when they do their – and I raise them an invoice. I basically send them an invoice to say, this is how many classes I've done, please pay me. Here's my bank details. Now, some gyms might have an employee and I run through their normal payroll. So let's look at the above, at the criteria we talked about earlier against the way I would operate or a gym instructor would operate. 
So if we talk about number one being control. Now, the gym owner has a legal right to control how, when and where I do the work. So for example, I can't take the class at home. I can't take a class outside. I'm usually required to be there at a set time every week that I turn up. So if I have a Monday class at, say, 10 a.m., I would turn up at 10 a.m. Monday and teach that class. So that's control. So you can have a think about whether you think who's got control. It sounds like the gym's got more control. Integration. So in some cases, instructors may have a contract that tells them they are representative of the gym owner's business. So for example, you might be told that you have to wear a staff badge or a staff t-shirt. So that kind of sounds like I'm representing their business, not mine, but it does also say in that criteria that I can choose. So maybe that's the fine line between the two, but I might also have my own personal training business and I might be able to wear a t-shirt that advertises that. So integration is probably a little bit subjective and depends on the actual circumstances. Let's look at the motor remuneration. Now, this one's interesting. It's arguable that an instructor on paid to a particular result, well, the result's probably the completion of the class and I've got a fixed rate that I receive when I complete it. Or am I being paid on a piece rate basis and therefore... Mm. what's the mode of remuneration? I guess that could sound a bit more like a contractor. The next one, ability to subcontract or delegate. So I cannot put someone else into that class that I have permanently on Mondays at 10 a.m. I cannot get someone else to turn up for me. I do if I'm off sick, but I have to go via the list of people given to me by the gym. So I can find someone to do it. I don't then get paid and pay them. They would instead bill the gym directly. So I'm not really subcontracting or delegating. I'm really filling the spot. That's an interesting one. Am I delegating it or subcontracting it? I'd say no, because I'm not being paid regardless and then be able to on pay. Maybe I make a profit if I did that, but that's not the case. So that's another interesting criteria. The provision of tools and equipment. So the gym provides most of the equipment and tools I need to teach. Really, the only thing I bring is the music that I need and I buy specific music for that class to be eligible to teach that class. Otherwise, the stereo, the gym equipment's all provided by the gym. Probably another interesting one. Risk. So it would be advisable that most gym instructors have their own insurance because personal liability might come to the gym instructor, even if, say, for example, participant went after the gym, they could still go after the gym instructor personally. So we are expected to keep our insurances, but as an employee, maybe not so much, but as a contractor, definitely we're required to have our own insurances. Then there's the generation of goodwill. Now, this is an interesting one. It's been known that members would actually change gyms to follow gym instructors to go to wherever they're teaching if they change gyms to teach a different class. Now, many of us go to lots of different gyms. So potentially the goodwill is not with us. It's sitting with the gym. But in some cases, it is with the instructor and maybe the instructor's business or the instructor gets quite a following of people who are quite loyal. And if they majority go to one gym, they might even follow them. But I would say it doesn't happen a lot. So what do you think? Should a gym instructor be treated as an employee? Now, you can see that it's not clear cut. There's probably a lot more detail that we would need to consider. And every contract and every arrangement needs to be viewed in light of what it says against the ATO's new ruling. And then for superannuation purposes and other purposes, potentially against some of those criteria. If you don't have a contract, then definitely against those criteria because the new ruling talks about the importance of the contract and what the legal rights and obligations are in that contract, which potentially makes us look less at that criteria and more at what the legal contract is. So the ATO website's got a few myths and myths to dispel about employees versus contractors, and I thought we'd quickly run through them. So myth number one that they have, if a worker has an ABN, they're a contractor. 
The fact is that an ABM makes no difference as to whether a worker is an employee or contractor for the job. So sometimes businesses request or pressure a worker who's an employee to obtain an ABN in the belief that that will make the worker a contractor. In that case, they might be just trying to disguise that they're really an employee to avoid their pay-as-you-go withholding and superannuation obligations. So if the worker is an employee, they're an employee and ABN's not going to change that. Myth, everyone in my industry takes on workers as contractors, so my business should too. Fact, just because others do it doesn't mean it's right. Myth, employees can't be used for short jobs or extra work to get extra things done during a busy period. The fact is, length of job or regularity of work makes no difference as to whether a worker is an employee or contractor. So both employees and contractors can be used for casual, temporary, on-call and infrequent work to staff up on busy periods for short jobs and specific tasks and projects. So that's not a defining factor. Myth. A worker cannot get more than 80% of their time from one business if they want to be considered a contractor. Now, that's not true. So the 80-20 rule you may have heard of actually relates to personal services income and can change how a contractor reports their income in their own tax return and claims some business deductions. Now, that's a different topic we're going to talk about. But what doesn't change is whether the person is an employee or a contractor for your business purposes. So myth, my business has always used contractors, so we don't need to check whether new workers are employees or contractors. Well, the fact is, before hiring a new worker, you should always check. Like as we just spoke about, it changed or the views changed last year. So if you're putting on new staff now or if you've got existing contractors, you might really want to be reviewing the way they're treated and continue to make sure you do so as you bring on new workers. So myth, if a worker has a registered business name, they're a contractor. Well, again, having a registered business name makes no difference to whether the worker is an employee or a contractor. Myth, if a worker is a contractor for one job, they're a contractor for all jobs. Fact, the working arrangement and specific terms and conditions will determine whether the worker is an employee or contractor for each job. Now, maybe that's the case with the gym instructors. So maybe the contract that I have with one looks very different from the next contract that I have, which is treats me as an employee. So that's definitely a factor. And I can be doing two different things for two different jobs or two different entities that I work for. Myth, my business should only take on contractors so we don't have to worry about super. Now, we talked a bit earlier about super. So super is actually a lower bar to achieve or the employee test is actually easier to achieve than it is now for pay-as-you-go withholding. So a business may be required to pay super for their contractors. Mm, Get your head around that. So remember, if you pay individual contractor under a contract that is wholly or principally for a person's labor, you have to pay super for them. So the next myth, workers using their specialist skills or qualifications should be engaged as contractors. Well, the fact is if a business takes on a worker for their specialist skills or qualifications, it doesn't automatically make them a contractor. So it depends. Myth, my worker wants to be a contractor, so my business should treat them as one. Well, this can be a sticking point when you are trying to engage a new worker. Just because they have a preference to be treated as a contractor doesn't mean you should do that. Remember, this is your business risk that you're trying to manage. So whether a worker is an employer or contractor is not a matter of choice, but depends entirely on the working arrangement and the specific terms and conditions. If you give in to pressure and treat them as a contractor, you could face penalties and charges for not meeting your tax and super obligations. 
myth. If a worker submits an invoice for their work, they're a contractor. Now, we sort of talked about it with the gym instructor's example. Submitting an invoice for work done does not mean that it's necessarily making that person a contractor. To know whether they're an employer contractor, you need to look at the whole working arrangement and examine specific terms and conditions. Myth. If a worker's contract has a section that says they're a contractor, then legally they're a contractor. Now, we did say earlier that the contract was important, but just saying that they're a contractor is not what's going to do it. So if a worker is legally an employee, a contract saying that they're a contractor will not make them a contractor at law. Businesses and workers will sometimes include specific words in a written contract to say the working arrangement is contracting in a mistaken belief that this will make them a contractor at law. If the worker is legally an employee, a contract specifying that they are will not override the employment relationship or change the worker into a contractor and it won't change the pay-as-you-go withholding and super obligations. So there's a, quite a few things there that may have been beliefs that you had. You can see some of those or you can see all of those on the ATO website and that ruling I referred to earlier is also available that you can have a read of which relates to pay-as-you-go withholding. So the other effect it can have is on payroll tax. So if you're a larger employer and you've got a larger salary and wages bill or you've got a large number of contractors and you've breached the payroll tax threshold in different states or in Australia-wide, then payroll tax has similar considerations to those we've just talked about when assessing whether an entity is an employee or contract for the purpose of calculating payroll tax liability. If the entity is considered an employee, then payments made to the contractor plus any super and pay-as-you-go withholding amounts may be subject to payroll taxes wages. Now, in addition, payments made to contractors may be subject to payroll tax even where the contractor is a genuine independent contractor for income tax purposes. So the payroll tax law includes amounts paid to contractors specifically in the definition of wages, unless a specific exemption applies. So payments to contractors are subject to payroll tax unless there's an exemption. So let's talk about the contractor exemptions. And I'm sitting in Queensland and there's very similar ones throughout most states, but I'm not going to talk about every state. So have a look at yours. In Queensland, there are nine exemptions for payments made to genuine contractors. Now, I'll give you some of these very quickly. So, where the same or similar services provided by the contract to the business do not exceed a total of 90 days in a financial year. So, for example, in payments made to a fitness instructor who provides services to a business once a week, which is 52 times throughout the year, they might be exempt from payroll tax. The types of services provided by the contractor are required by the business for less than 180 days in a financial year. So, for example, say you got a landscaper in and the gym hired them to perform their landscaping services on a specific project and it took, well, they're not ordinarily required services or they're not required for less than 100 or they're required for only 120 days for the year, then they're not required to include the payment made to that individual contractor in their payroll tax calculations. So another exemption is where the services are performed by two or more people. Say the gym contracts with a bookkeeping business for ongoing bookkeeping and two employees of the bookkeeping business provide those services, then that's not going to be subject to payroll tax. So where the services are ancillary to the supply of goods, for example, where the gym equipment is set up by a technician and the installation services are part of buying the equipment, then they would be exempt. The, the labor part of that would be exempt from the payroll tax calculation. Where the services provide the contract contractor are normally also provided to the public generally. Now, to be able to rely on this exemption, the business will need to apply to the commissioner for approval. 
mm, you may or may not get it. But that's the one where the services provided by the contractor are normally also provided to the public generally, but you need approval to apply that exemption. Now, the next ones that we'll go through quickly, so where the services are approved by the commissioner is exempt, where the services are provided by an owner-driver, door-to-door sales, and relating to selling insurance. They all have exemptions under the Queensland Payroll Tax Act. Otherwise, contractor payments are included in the definition of wages for payroll tax purposes in Queensland. So business owners really need to keep sufficient records and evidence to support the exemptions that they're looking to apply. So I would be going through and tracking the costs and then assessing at the time or at the end of the year that exemption that you've relied upon to say that I'm not including them in my payroll tax calculations. Also, if you do get that wrong or if you have deliberately not included them, then you need to be aware there's always interest and penalties on top of the liabilities you may owe. But let's not forget about an important other matter, which is workers' compensation insurance. Whilst it's not a tax, it is a legal obligation. So employers must make sure they insure their employees against work-related injuries. If your employee is not properly insured, then penalties may apply. Now, contractors who are deemed employees must be included in wages for workers' compensation purposes. Genuine contractors do not generally need to be insured as they're responsible for their own insurance. Now, that's what we wanted to cover today on employees versus contractors. I hope that this has given you a lot more information as to your obligations as a business owner when it comes to paying workers and making sure that you undertake an assessment of whether that worker is an employee or contractor and how that might apply to different legal obligations that you have. My name is Sally Preston, and that was our episode of Smarten Up, the tax and business podcast. I look forward to talking to you on our next episode. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Smarten Up, tax and business. I hope you found the information valuable as you navigate your entrepreneurial journey. If you did, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your fellow business owners. Remember, what we've talked about today is not a substitute for getting formal advice from an accountant or lawyer that is more specific to your circumstances. But knowledge is power when it comes to getting your taxes right, and it can also save you a buttload of money too.